If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Talking with Lizzie this morning about how it's it's actually been a month since I've actually preached from the book of Philippians. So it was good to kind of get reoriented with that in my studies this week. And I've kind of, in a way, have been preparing this message, not, not as intensely as I would normally in a given week as I'm working from week to week. But over the course of several weeks, this passage has been on my mind and there is something to be said for the providence of God in the midst of, of this as well. Because as even though as we have had an, a bit of an unusual month of November, uh, the month of November began for me with symptoms of, of COVID and then testing positive for COVID, causing me to have to miss out on a speaking engagement that I was supposed to, to be engaged in, preaching at a youth retreat that had to be canceled. And of course, services here had to be suspended because of the exposure that I had given to everyone here and all of those details. Well, okay, we worked through that and was able to get healthy once again. And as I was returning back to my electrical job, the first day back doing electrical again, I go out to my vehicle, go to start my car, and I drive a 2000 Honda Odyssey. That thing runs smooth it runs quiet. Sometimes if the music's going, you can't even tell if the thing's even running. You have to turn the music off just to tell because it just runs so quiet, so smooth. Well, I get out there 7.30 in the morning and turn it over and it turns over just fine. But when it starts up, it scares me because it sounds like a race car. And a 2000 Honda Odyssey is not supposed to sound like a race car. Well, someone had stolen my catalytic converter had chopped it right off. And so course from a human perspective that just messes the whole day up all right now okay i got to call an auto repair place i got to drive it in and got to get it repaired and and all of that and all those details and then i'm still trying to get to these electrical appointments that i had said and had calling them say hey, i'm not going to be able to make it at this time it's going to be later all those details just again from a human perspective just messes the whole day up and yet the text that is before us today is staring me in the face. This is the text I've been studying. This is what I've been dealing with and preparing for to preach today. Rejoice always. And again I say, rejoice. And at some point in the midst of all this, I remember making a comment to Lizzie. You know, this is quite the text to be preaching on on the heels of all these things that we've experienced over this last Months and and that's that's just the things that have gone on in in our own life and I'm sure that there are there's a variety of things even things that I'm aware of in in some of your lives as well of, of hardships and difficulties that you all have experienced that just these are things we'd rather live without right like I I just if I had my way I just wouldn't have to go through this like I I didn't volunteer to have a catalytic converter stolen right. Nobody volunteers to get COVID or to get whatever illness or to face some of these other situations that we deal with in life. Life doesn't always go as we desire it to. And yet, we are called to rejoice. To rejoice always. I referenced a few of the difficulties we've experienced. We could point to a variety of other things that have happened in my life, in my extended family's life, uh, things that I know have happened in your lives. And yet, as we have discussed time and time again, 
The theme of Paul's letter is joy, and yet Paul himself is no stranger to suffering and hardship on his own. In fact, if we were to go to other books of the Bible, we would see of how he would tell about his hardships, about how he was shipwrecked, how he was beaten, how he was stoned, how he was imprisoned, and all the things that he endured. And even as he writes this letter, he is sitting in prison, writing to a church that is suffering and is being persecuted for nothing else than believing in Jesus Christ. The Jews hate them for that. The Romans hate them for that. And he calls upon them to rejoice. He calls them to a life that is different. It would seem strange and odd and noteworthy to consider, you know, as we think about how the normal human self responds to such things. The things that that Paul is asking us to do is is strange. It's, It's odd. It's different. And yet this is what we are called to. Now, I'm going to make a, a comment here on, uh, on some Greek grammar. And I don't often do this. Every once in a while, I do. And I know that Greek grammar isn't always the most exciting thing to listen to as we work through. Oh, you love the Greek grammar. Fantastic. <laughs> well, not everybody does. <laughs> For some people, there's nothing more boring than Greek grammar. But there are times when understanding a little bit of how the Greek functions gives us a little bit greater insight and a little greater understanding of the text. And so when it is appropriate, I like to bring those things before us so we can have that greater understanding. Well, the section that we are about to move into, this, this paragraph from in Philippians chapter 4, beginning with verse 4, we have a series of what are called imperative verbs. Imperatives are verbs of command, where Paul is giving instructions, I want you to do this. Now, most of Paul's letter, in fact, even most of the New Testament, of the Greek New Testament, is filled with what are called indicative verbs. Indicative verbs are verbs of declaration. They're declarative verbs that state what has happened or what has been done. So Jesus died on the cross. There's a declaration of what has happened. It's an indicative verb. And that's the majority of the verbs that we find in the Greek New Testaments. But every so often we find that we come across these imperative verbs where the author is writing and he's giving explicit instructions, say, okay, now I want you to do this. And he gives us these imperatives, instructing the listeners to do something specific. Well, here in our passage, in our paragraph of verses 4 through, uh, really down through verse 9, we have a a series, an unusual concentration of imperative verbs, where there's just a series, a succession of do this, do this, do this, do this. Several commands that Paul gives us for here in rapid-fire short succession. The thing for us to remember as we reflect upon, okay, now Paul is giving us some commands here, he's giving us some explicit instructions, that Paul's habit and even other writers in the New Testament as well, the habit is not to just simply give commands for the sake of giving commands devoid of all other context. But rather, the imperative commands are always grounded in the indicative declarations of what has already been declared and written about previously in the letter. Paul always grounds imperative verbs in the indicative verbs. 
He never gives us a command for how we ought to live our lives without first declaring something to us about the nature of who our God is and the, na- and the things that He has done. And that's important for us to remember because as we reflect, especially I think upon these next couple of paragraphs, there are some things in here that are particularly challenging to live out on a day-to-day basis. They're just challenging. Rejoice always. Easier said than done. Be anxious for nothing. Easier said than done. And so we have these these different things that come, we have these commands, we have these instructions, and yet sometimes we can get overwhelmed when we find these these commands in Scripture where it's like, how do I do this? And so we must remember that Paul grounds imperative commands in the indicative, in in the declarations of what God is, who God is, and what He has done. So when he says, Rejoice always. It's in the backdrop of knowing that Jesus is at work within you the way Scripture says He is. It is because we have the Holy Spirit who illumines and empowers us and we can handle difficult times in different ways because we are followers of Jesus Christ and because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, because we know that Jesus Christ is going to one day return. So we have these different things these, that Paul has declared it to us that informs the instructions that He gives us. And so I make, I make that note to remind us of that and, and we'll be re- just being reminded of that concept even as we move through our text. But as in the face of trying times, as we face difficulties in our lives, Paul gives us here several commands which comprise what end up being, I think, what our series of odd responses to hardships. And today we're just going to look at two because of just for time's sake, and if we get into all these other things, we'll be here for quite some time. But we'll, we're just going to limit and look at the first two imperatives that we have in this paragraph today. The two odd responses to hardship. The first is joy. And the second is a patient endurance. So let's look at this first response in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Of course, this theme of joy we've observed as we've moved through the book of Philippians, that this is really the overall theme of the book of Philippians. Paul has made different comments about rejoicing, about rejoicing in different circumstances, about rejoicing over the Philippians. This theme is present throughout the book of Philippians. It's the theme of joy. He wants us to rejoice even despite our troubles. In fact, uh, if I were to give a, a title to this, this series through the book of Philippians, in fact, this is how we titled it at the beginning of our study, that the overall theme of this is divine joy for our earthly journey. We are living our lives here on the earth. We are just walking along as believers in Christ, but we're living on the earth and all the things that that means for us and all the uh, circumstances that go on around us. And yet Paul seeks to encourage us in the direction of joy. Divine joy, joy that can only come from above, that can only come from knowing what we have in Christ and knowing what He has done for us and is doing for us and will do for us in the future. 
So it's divine joy for our earthly journey. And Paul speaks often of joy. But do you think he really means what he says, though? I mean, rejoice in the Lord always, always. In every circumstance, in every situation, is that really how we should understand this? Always. Even when my catalytic converter is stolen. <laughs> well, Paul is really actually quite emphatic here. He doesn't just say rejoice, but he doubles down on it. He, he says it again. I, yes, I, I say it again. Rejoice. Just in case maybe there's somebody in the back of the room there that didn't quite hear me the first time. No, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Be joyful. Be glad. Rejoice. And again, this is easier said than done, isn't it? Much easier said than done when we face the trials that we experience in this world. When I first discovered that my converter was missing, I took a picture of that and I posted it up on Facebook and there's someone who left a comment that said, looks like another opportunity to trust your Heavenly Father. Which is exactly correct. That's exactly what that was. It looks like it is another opportunity to trust my Heavenly Father. But it's easy to type that on Facebook. It's a lot harder to actually begin to living that out. To actually making that a practical aspect of our lives. And often when we face these commands in Scripture, we find difficult to follow. We can get frustrated. Can't we? I, mean, I can. I don't, maybe you can, but I can get frustrated. Because I, I study this text, it's just like, okay, it's, all right, Paul, Mr. Super Apostle. All right, it's easy for you to say. But I'm just Ken. You know, I, this, is not, this is not so easy to do. And, and so I think it's helpful for us when we encounter these things. Okay, let's, let's just take a step back. All right? we, we see the command, we see the instruction, and we know that it's hard. How does Paul get there? How does Paul get to that conclusion? When he himself is in prison, when he himself has experienced stoning, when he himself has been left for dead on the side of the road, when he's experienced shipwreck, how does he get to this place where he says, rejoice in the Lord always? And again, I reiterate, I'm going to say it again, rejoice. I think this is the critical question. Paul isn't, Paul isn't ignoring the world around him. Like he's not just, you know, just kind of closing himself off and pretending like the hard things aren't there. Even in this letter himself, he's acknowledged the hardship. He acknowledges the suffering that not only he's experiencing, but that the people that he's writing to, that they're experiencing. He's not di- dismissing that and saying, oh, well, just pretend like that doesn't exist and just, just be happy. Like, that's not what's happening. And so again, we need to remember that the information that he is giving us, the command, it's, it's grounded, once again, in the indicative, the, the, the declarations that he has made. That's what's informing the imperatives and the commands that he gives us. This is an outflow of everything that Paul has been talking to up to this point. All the information that we've been studying throughout the book of Philippians, it all leads up to this point of rejoice always. All right? And that's, not only is that important to remember, but I find that encouraging. 
Right? Paul's not just screaming at us, hey, you over there, you look kind of sad. Stop that. Just be happy. Right? That's not what Paul's doing. But rather, he's telling us that the one who began a good work in you, we read back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, the one who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. Paul has been giving us this perspective that often sometimes these negative circumstances that we can experience in life can lead to opportunities for the gospel. As he explained in chapter 1 when he was in jail, he had the opportunity to witness to the palace guard. He encourages us by showing us what Christ did for us, how he entered into the world. He took on human flesh and endured the consequences of the shame of the crucifixion. And yet he has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father. And every knee will bow before Christ and declare that he is Lord to the glory of God of the Father. He unfolds for us the immeasurable value of knowing Jesus Christ and how he's willing to trade everything, every, every comfort of life, every circumstance he can find himself that would be positive. He's willing to trade all that if he can just know Jesus Christ. And he unfolds for us the surpassing value and worth of knowing Jesus Christ his Lord. And He points our eyes upward unto the cross, our returning Savior, noting that our citizenship is in heaven. It is with Christ and that one day He is going to come for His own. That's what we've been seeing and studying all the way through the first three chapters of the book of Philippians. And now it's in that context. It's with that backdrop of what we have seen about who Christ is, what He has done, and the value and the worth of knowing Christ. That's how He can come to this point and say, now I say, rejoice. Rejoice, always. Look at what we have in Christ. Look at what He's done for us. How could we have any other response? but joy in our Lord. And if we observe this, if we are able to walk according to what Paul is, is directing us in the avenue that he's showing us, this is going to make us different, is it not? When we look at the world around us and how the human flesh typically responds to difficulties and troubles, you know, we're supposed to get mad when things don't go our way, right? That's, that's how we're supposed to. I say we're supposed to, according to the worldly perspective. That's how we should, from a worldly, fleshly perspective, respond. I mean, I'm probably beating this illustration of my catalytic converter to death at this point, but just bear with me for a little while longer. When, when that happened, and okay, I took it to, to, the, uh, to the mechanic and he was repairing it and just talking with my electrical clients as I'm talking, this is why I'm delayed, my catalytic converter was stolen, all these things. The thing that I heard from every single person that I talked to is, doesn't that just make you mad? Like they were getting mad for me. Like they were just, they were upset that this was a thing. In fact, the mechanic himself, uh, his comment was, I'd just like to catch one. Because I tell you, they'd be going to the hospital one way or another. It's just like, Oh, okay. It's like, yeah, you just, you were supposed to be mad. So when we respond with joy, even in circumstances that I really would have preferred to avoid, that's going to make us different. It's going to make us stand out from the world. And again, this doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to the, the, the hardships and the, the difficulties, stick our fingers in our ears, close our eyes, pretend like nothing's happening to us. Now, that's, 
that's foolishness. That's not living in reality. And so we don't, we're not trying to escape from reality. But when we reflect upon Christ and we see what we have in the value of Christ, all right, take my catalytic converter. I've got Christ. You can't take that away. You can't take that away. You can take my converter again and again and again. Guess what? I still have Christ. And when we reflect upon who He is, what He has done, that should lead us to a place of joy. As I was studying for this, I happened to come across a testimony from the book The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. If that's not a book you're familiar with, it'd be good to pick that up and read it sometime. It's an autobiography of a Christian woman who helped hide and rescue Jews from the Nazis during the Holocaust in World War II. And she got, was caught and she was captured. She was sent to one of the concentration camps and she endured just the most despicable of circumstances, the most horrendous of environments that you could exist in. And she recounts how she was challenged to rejoice always. And this is a quote from the book. While in Ravensbrück concentration camp, and pardon me if I mispronounce that, but Corrie ten Boom and her sister Betsy dealt with dreadful conditions. This woman's labor camp dorms were crammed into three high trough-like sleeping barracks with rancid hay as their bed. The cramped conditions and lack of basic sanitation led to a lice and a massive infestation of fleas. And Corey wondered how they can endure such a dreadful place. But Betsy prayed and told her sister that they must give thanks in everything. Give thanks in all circumstances. But the filth and the fleas? Corey wondered how she could possibly ever be thankful for the lice and the fleas. Well, several weeks later, one of the supervisors was called in their barracks to view something Betsy was working on. Well, their supervisor refused because the place was crawling with fleas. Betsy then reminded her sister that it was the fleas that allowed them so much freedom to form a bond with and pray and teach about Jesus in their entire barrack with little infringement from the captors because neither the supervisors nor the guards wanted to be in their barracks because of the lice and the fleas. And this is when Corey realized that she could be thankful even for a flea. We don't always get to see how God is using the hardships that we're experiencing. God God allowed Corey to see a little bit there. God allowed Paul to see, okay, he's in jail, and, and now because of this unique circumstance, I have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel that I wouldn't have had before. And the same was true for Corey, and God allowed them to see that connection. We don't always get to see how God is using our hardship. That's not always revealed to us. That curtain's not always peeled back for us to see what God is doing behind the scenes. But when we know the character of our God, we know the promises of what He has said. We know that He will never leave us nor forsake us. We know that He works all things together for good. If we trust Him, we have joy because we know that He is at work.
even with fleas, even with the lice. And again, this response is going to make us different. This is going to make us look completely strange from the world. And again, I don't think this looks like us walking through life, you know, just with just being bubbly all the time and just, you know, I think that can be artificial if we're approaching it in that way. But it does shape how we respond and, and how we react. And when circumstances come upon us, we can still rejoice even in sorrow. There can be joy even in sorrow. Well, that's the first odd response to hardship. The second is found in verse 5. Paul writes, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Here's that second command. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And this, that word in the ESV, reasonableness, is, is a bit challenging to, to translate. And consequently, our English Bibles, if you've got different translations, you're going to see different words. ESV says reasonableness. King James says moderation. New American Standard says gentle spirit. NIV says gentleness. The Christian Standard Bible says graciousness. It's just all over the place with how they translate this particular word. Well, the Greek word is uh, epic. Epiakes, and if we are to epiakes, here's how the uh, a Greek dictionary defines this word. It says, not insisting on every right or letter of law or custom to be yielding, to be gentle, to be kind, to be courteous, or to be tolerant. So the idea is that in some context, you might, you might find that you might have a, even a right to insist on something being a certain way, but for the sake of gentleness for the sake of graciousness you're willing to yield to another's wishes kind of takes us back to chapter two when paul is writing about how we are not to be insisting upon our own ways but to be deferential to others we're to to show others deference look not only for your own interests but the interests of others Another lexicon defines it this way. It, it means to, it's pertaining to being gracious and forbearing. So the concept is that there's, maybe there's something that's being done to you that's not ideal. Right? We, we don't, it, it's, it's mistreatment upon us. But well, you have a choice about how you respond to that. Right, you can lash out at the person who is mistreating you. You could rip them up, up one side and down the other. Uh, you could maybe grudge your way through things and just endure it, but you're going to let everyone know how unhappy you are about how you're having to endure that. Or we can be a case. We can be reasonable. We can be courteous. We can be gentle. We can be forbearing. I think this speaks to a, a measured response in the face of perhaps even injustice that comes against us. A measured response that doesn't react in, in, in uh, extreme ways and lashing outs, but responds with graciousness that recognizes the image of God in the other person who's even mistreating you. Epia case. Paul recognized that the people that he was writing to, they were enduring hardship at the hands of those who were rejecting Christ. And he challenges them. 
to approach that with a mindset of patient endurance. Patient endurance, a tolerance, a forbearance. If we're approaching life like this, uh, the, the concept of rejoicing and joy and, and bringing that together with this, this concept of forbearance, patient endurance in the face of circumstances that are less than desirable. But when we reflect upon, again, the backdrop of all the things that Paul has said about Christ, about what He is doing in our lives, we don't have to have the worldly response because we have a better perspective. And we see that there's more going on than what the circumstances reveal, that there can be this reasonableness, this gentleness, this calmness, a settledness, almost a peace when there is difficulty around us. Because the reality is that you know, if, if we respond as the world would respond in the face of these things, if we fly off the handle when there's some injustice that comes against us and we respond the way that the world does, what does that communicate about what we believe? How we respond the things, are, the things that we do communicates something about what it is that we believe. But if we are reasonable, if we are measured, if we are gentle, it shows that our hope isn't in our circumstances. All right, it's not in the things that, that, that we are living in. Our hope isn't in our, our world right here and now. Rather, our hope is in something greater. Our hope is in Jesus Christ who has given Himself for us. I like how one commentator put it. He says this, quote, This is a humble, patient steadfastness that is able to submit to injustice, disgrace, and maltreatment without hatred or malice, trusting God in spite of it all. A humble, patient steadfastness submitting to injustice, disgrace, and maltreatment without hatred or malice, trusting in God in spite of it all. Again, easier said than done. It just as because of our own sinful heart, because of the flesh that we have within ourselves, easier said than done. But remember, Paul grounds in uh, the imperative verbs in the indicative, and look what comes after he gives this command: Let your graciousness, let your gentleness, let your forbearance be known to all. The next phrase: The Lord is at hand the Lord is at hand the Lord is near now there are two possible meanings from Paul from what he could mean here and two uh, possible implications from Paul's words so let's, let's think about this for a moment first Paul could mean physical proximity so I think of Jesus' words in the Great Commission, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he says in another place, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that's the, the idea of that, the physical proximity, that the Lord is near. He's right by you. He is with you. And the second possible meaning is a more of a, what's called an eschatological meaning. It refers to the, the end times, right, of, the, of Jesus Christ's Return. His return is near. It is at hand. This is an eschatological understanding of Paul's words. Well, as I was reading and studying this week, I, 
I came across two very different approaches for how we should understand Paul's words when he says the Lord is at hand. And the first is a, is a pretty negative connotation. The idea of almost viewing it as a warning. That the Lord is at hand. You need to act this way. You need to let your forbearance be known to all because God is watching you. He, he sees all and even if there's no one else around to see your complaints, well, He does. And on the one hand, this concept is certainly true. God does see all. He does. He is aware of all of our responses, even the things that we mutter within our own hearts that nobody else hears. It is true that God does see and hear that. However, I don't believe that Paul is trying to guilt or shame his audience into a particular behavior as if God is as if God resembles like a Santa Claus type figure. He sees you when you're asleep. He sees you when you're awake. So you better be good for goodness sake because God's always watching. Again, it's true that God is always watching. But I don't think that's the thrust of what Paul's communicating. I don't think he's meant, meaning this to be a warning. I think he's meaning it to be a comfort to us. And so the second approach was taken by a commentator by the name of Gordon Fee. And I'm just going to quote what he writes because it is just that good. Gordon Fee writes, Since their present suffering is at the hands of those who proclaim Caesar as Lord, they are reminded that the true Lord is near. Their eschatological vindication is close at hand. And at the same time, Paul is encouraging them to pray in the midst of their present distress because the Lord is near in a very real way to those who call on Him now. So even though we might face hardship, even though we might face maltreatment, even though we might face even injustice, we can endure it with a gracious gentleness because we know that the Lord is at hand. Jesus Christ is going to return. He is going to set up His kingdom. There is going to be justice that will be administered. All will be set right. And so we can live at peace in knowing that even if right now for this present time it seems that the evil prosper, that one day all will be set right. And I don't have to take things into my own hands. But I can be at peace in Christ. The Lord is at hand. The evil will not prosper forever. So we can endure it with a gracious gentleness because again, we know that the Lord is at hand. He is near to us. We can call out to Him. We can go to Him with our troubles and we will find the grace that we need for the moment. And again, I, I know that this can be a challenge for us, especially I think for for us as Americans, we live in America and we got our rights, you know, we want to stand up for our rights and all these things. And I, and I get that there are constitutional rights that are supposed to be guaranteed to us. And I understand the concept of standing for those and doing uh, what we can to, to fight for those. And I don't think that that is at odds with Paul's command here. First, I think we should consider that, that Paul isn't speaking about our rights as citizens of a nation of this world. He's talking about people who are suffering for their faith and enduring hardship for the sake of Christ and enduring that well. 
And responding with reasonableness and gentleness doesn't mean you don't stand up for what's right. In fact, I think we are called to stand up for what is right and to stand up for what is right in the face of those who would do what is wrong. But we do so, even when we do so, we do so with this gentleness, with this attitude of of forbearance and, and this calmness in the midst of it. So it doesn't mean that we just lay down and let people walk all over us, but it does mean that in our responses we are measured in how we engage. Our current media is designed to make you and I angry. It's designed that way. In fact, there have been studies that have been done and algorithms are built this way. In fact, this was actually fairly recently revealed uh, with Facebook's algorithm that Facebook was waiting. You know, there's the different reactions. It used to be just the like reaction. Well, now you can do the angry reaction or the sad reaction or the wow reaction, all these different things. Or the heart reaction, yeah, the care reaction. Facebook's algorithm was waiting the angry reaction because it found out that people engage with that kind of content more and engagement is good. So whatever drives engagement, that's what the algorithm was waiting and was, was giving greater preference to. And our, the our news headlines are similar. Marketers have discovered that statistically people are more motivated to action by anger than by any other emotion. And this is what drives our whole political system as well. It drives everything. We see, we see this both on the political right and the political left, depending on who's in office in the White House at the time. We see these angry responses in this, the news media that is just driving these angry responses. We have seen this on a variety of levels surrounding this whole pandemic that we're in with the, well, whether you should mask or not mask, or you should take the vaccine or not take the vaccine. Some people are just leaving that up to individual choices. Other people are very passionate about not only what their choice is, but about making everyone else abide by that choice as well. And they get very angry about this issue. And it's understandable to have strong opinions. I'm not saying saying don't have strong opinions. But it makes a difference how we interact with others who do differ and how we respond when we have people coming and saying things about us. Media companies know that if they can make you angry, they'll get your attention and possibly your money, so it's sensitized that way. And I've used the examples of media and politics. It's not just, obviously, it's not just those issues, right? We're, we're in the holiday season, which is, for many people, it can be a very stressful time. People trying to do their last-minute Christmas shopping and all these things, and our patience can run short, Right? And we get the long lines in the grocery when you're trying to get through and it's like, ah, I got somewhere to be and all these things. And our patience can run short. In fact, our culture has even assigned a name to a kind of person that's always you know, asking for the manager or complaining about this, that, or the other thing. And I, I, I feel sorry for all the sweet and godly Karens of the world because of how that name has just been used in this way. But, but there's this whole caricature and we've given even a name to it because... This is culture, and this is life, and this is just how it is here in the great United States of America. And we're called to be different. We're called to respond differently. We're called to be gentle, called to be reasonable. And not only that, but he says, let your reasonableness be known to all. Everyone should be able to see and say, you know what, that individual, that's a reasonable person. That's someone who you can talk with and you don't feel like you're just 
talking with someone who's just going to scream at you or, or whatever else. And, I mean, can you imagine a conversation like this? Oh, you must be a Christian. Well, why do you say that? Because only a Christian can take the abuse that you do and still remain calm. Or, only a Christian can figure out ways to keep their cool when this negative circumstance is happening. Only a Christian can figure out how to be at peace in the midst of your hardship. And we could respond, well, I know that my Lord is near. I know that He's near. He's coming back. This world's not going to be like this forever. My Lord is near. I know my Lord is near. I can go to Him with my, with my troubles and with my concerns. I can pray to Him. And I can pour my heart out before Him. Because my Lord is near. I can have joy because I know that He who began a good work, He's going to complete it. That road may not be fun. It may be hard. But He's going to complete that good work in me. So I can rejoice in knowing that the things that as, as we, even as we read from Peter this morning, though we endure this hardship from, for a little while, this results in the praise and the honor and the glory of our great God and Savior who is worthy to be praised. The Lord is near. So we're called to have these strange responses. Joy, gentleness, a patient endurance. And if our lives are marked by this, it doesn't make our troubles disappear. But it might help us as we seek to manage them. If our lives are marked by this, it will be strange to a watching world that will provide additional opportunities for conversations about our Lord. If our lives are marked by this, we, this will demonstrate that we really believe what we say we believe. And if our lives are marked by this, we will bring glory to the one who has given us everything. Rejoice always. The Lord is near. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, I know even myself, I am challenged by the words on this page. Lord, there are hard things to endure in this world. In the grand scheme, I've used the illustration of the catalytic converter and that is just nothing compared to the hardships that many others are experiencing even now. But I thank you for your word. I thank you for how it challenges us and I thank you that, that Paul grounds the commands and the declarations of who you are, what you have done, what you are doing and that we can be at peace and comfort knowing that you are at work. And that you will never leave us nor forsake us. That you are near. I pray that we can be a people of joy, especially as we are coming into this holiday season when, when it is supposed to be a season of joy. And we talk about that joy to the world and, and all these things. And yet, so often our temptation can be one of impatience. Help us to be a people of genuine joy. And not just in December, but always as you reflect upon the truth of your word. Guide us, direct us, strengthen us. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.